Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs, and today we are lucky enough to have Nico Skibaski with us. And Nico is already a legend in Madison, and he's not even 30. He's the president and co-founder of Redox, which is essentially the API for electronic health records, which Nico can give a better description of. Um, He was also recently named to Forbes 30 under 30 for healthcare. And before Redox, he co-founded Hutterd State, which is a co-working incubator type space in Madison, which is quite original and cool. Uh, So Nico is actually in Madison, as I mentioned, so I'm lucky enough to be doing this in person. So, uh, yeah, let's get started. Uh, Nico, thanks for uh, coming on the show today. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, Yeah, so uh, you're young, but you still have a a pretty impressive background. Can you uh, tell us kind of how you got to where you are now? (laughs) Sure, yeah. Uh, So I'm originally from Phoenix, uh, although I was born in Hawaii, which is where I get my vague ethnicity from. (laughs) (laughs) Your good looks. (laughs) Yeah, and I went to Arizona State for economics, and while I was doing that, I worked at Wells Fargo as an analyst, which was really kind of a cool way to go through school, because I got to apply what I was learning like every day. And I think that's that's something, in the entrepreneurial sense, you have to learn quickly and apply what you learn quickly to um, to get moving you know, in whatever direction you're going. And so I, I got used to doing that really early. So I worked at Wells Fargo for four years as an analyst through undergrad and uh, after graduation. And then went to graduate school for um, for more economics in Boston at Boston University. Um, was there for I, I thought I would be there for you know six years doing a PhD, but after a course the year and a half of coursework, I decided I didn't want to be a professor. Um, <laughs> and uh, why, so is that, why is that? I I, I realized that it, it was too too theoretical, and I wanted okay. to figure out how to again apply the economics I was learning into the real world. And when you get into the, the academic side of economics, it's very much like making models up that you hope to describe the way the world works, but you're really just trying to put math into the world mm-hmm. in it almost seems like an artificial way because you create, you create the mathematical model that, uh, that you think represents the yeah. world and then you shock the model and then you say, if that happened in the real world, this is what we could expect and then you try to test it. And it seemed to... Um, too, too out there, a little too meta for, for me. I wanted to figure out how to make change uh, in things in day-to-day life. And actually, that's how I found myself in healthcare because uh, as, a, as an economics grad student, I started looking at the healthcare industry as, as an area that was just, you know, <laughs> torn up with, with misaligned incentives. <laughs> so you have, you have doctors who get paid every time they, they order meds or, or procedures, so they want to do more of it. Um, you have payers who who want to keep patients out of hospitals um, and pay for, you know, n- not not pay for the, essentially the, the less they pay for, the more money they make. So they have <laughs> this, this perverse incentive. Um, you have hospitals who get paid the longer you stay in them, um, which means that, you know, if they keep you n- another couple nights, then they get paid more, which might not always be right for your health. Um, so there were all these misaligned incentives. And so I started looking at, first off, what causes those incentives to be misaligned? And then what are the effects of those misaligned incentives, and that amounts to just a terrible amount of inefficiency in the healthcare space. And so, within that inefficiency, there's you know probably a hundred dis- economics dissertations that could be written. Um, <laughs> the area that I started looking at was technology, and saying, okay, if there's all this inefficiency, technology and the adoption of technology, uh, really, technology is is synonymous with efficiency. We adopt technology in the world so we can become more efficient. Yeah. And so I said, well, what's, what technology is being adopted or is not being adopted in healthcare and how could that contribute to efficiency gains? And that's what got me looking at electronic medical records. Um, so I first heard about Epic as I was researching technology in healthcare. Um, Epic is one of the largest electronic medical record companies in the, in the world. Um, they supply or they have medical records for something like 60% of the U.S. population. And... Uh, so I, I started looking into how I can talk to Epic. I thought maybe I could get my hands on their data and play with it. And, <laughs> Easy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought, well, you know, if you have sixty percent of the U.S. population, maybe we can we can slice and dice that data and figure out uh, where there are some you know places to have efficiency gains and you know save lives and actually apply some some of this you know looking at 
analytics and data to um, improve healthcare. So I started talking to them and Epic is traditionally a, a, or known for being a closed off kind of private company. Um, and I found that the only way to really talk to them was through their recruiting channel. So I ended up talking to uh, someone in HR and um, they eventually offered me a job as a project manager. And anyone who knows me knows that I'm a, I would be a terrible project manager. <laughs> um, but they, they offered me a job as a project manager. I turned them down and was like, no, I'm not really looking for a job. Um, you know, I'm an economist. I'm trying to figure out you know, how, how we can use some of this data and you know, make the world a better place. Um, and around that same time, I was realizing I didn't want to go into academia with, okay. with, uh, uh, at Boston University where I was in, in grad school. Uh, and then Epic got back to me a month later and, and offered me a job as a pricing analyst. So huh. I was like, oh, pricing, you know, that's, that's economics. That's um, that's we, right. you know, we have a, we have a market leader in the industry. Uh, they need to figure out how to charge their customers. Uh, and if I'm working there, I'll have kind of the inside scoop on how this, uh, elusive company works. So I accepted the job and, um, you know, picked up and moved to Madison. I had to, what year was that? That was 20, when was that? 2010. Okay. Yeah. So I was on, on an airplane from Boston Logan to, uh, Madison and literally looked at the back of the, the airplane magazine where they have the map of the country yeah. and was like, Oh, that's where I'm going. I, I didn't, serious? I, oh, I, my, my Midwest geography is, is quite poor. <laughs> um, so yeah, moved here, uh, worked at Epic, had a, had a blast while I was there. Um, realized in my first month at Epic that probably something I should have realized long before I accepted the job, but realize that Epic doesn't have the data. They, they provide the software to house the data, but the data itself is kept in the basements of health systems across the country. So, you know, Kaiser and, and Providence and, and yeah, and still is all these big yeah. health systems yeah. who use Epic literally buy the software from Epic and then um, run their own database hmm. in a data center that they manage that doesn't talk to the, uh, the health system down the street and it doesn't talk to the internet. Um, it kind of sits there managed on, a, on an Epic server. And so that was, uh, that was pretty disheartening, <laughs> figuring <laughs> yeah. out that, Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, you know, the, the data didn't talk to each other. Um, but, but also, you know, the, 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 there are other reasons that it made sense to digitize healthcare than, uh, to combine the data together. And that's why Epic became successful and other EMRs were adopted. And that was because even if we're not combining the data of all the patients in the country, we can still streamline workflows at health systems and say, how can we help a doctor provide care uh, more efficiently to a patient? Uh, how can we, you know, help, help multiple providers collaborate around a patient's care. And so that was a lot of the things that, that electronic medical records help with. Um, and then there's the backend process of how do we document what we've done with the patient and send that to an insurance company. And so I learned all about that while working at Epic. Um, you know, I, I, uh, bounced around to six different offices in my in my couple years, three years that I was at Epic. So I wasn't a pricing analyst for long. Um, I found out that another thing that Epic does in a sort of unique way is pricing. They they don't change their price. So, <laughs> so what what were you analyzing? <laughs> exactly. Um, so they and, and and they do this out of out of fairness. Epic is one of these companies that that has this um, you know they they believe in being fair to all of their customers. Sometimes they work with children's hospitals. Sometimes they work with academics. Um, you know, they, you know, a lot of these guys are nonprofits. So they, they say, okay, we're going to charge a certain price for the size of the health system, regardless of who they are. We're not going to negotiate. Uh, we're not going to change that price because if we raise the price, um, it's not fair for the person who pays the higher price that we sold it to someone last year for a lower price. And if we lower the price, it's not fair to the people who paid the higher price last year. So they have this sort of mindset of, our price is our price, take it or leave it. Uh, which meant that as an analyst, there's not really much to, to change once the price is set. And setting a price only happens every time a new product comes out, which okay. is you know not very often. So we had a team of uh, seven people as pricing analysts um, who were basically reading prices and calculating how big a health system is and um, giving a price to the sales team, which was a pretty... Uh, it was a job that you could automate. You could say, okay. you know, we have this price list. We can just kind of automate this. So I did a lot of uh, automation work and essentially automated myself out of out of the job in my first month there. Um, first month. <laughs> and and you know, we, we we built a, a better way to 
to get prices out. It was, you know, not rocket science, but um, that landed me in a job where I worked with Epic's uh, um, kind of number number three. They some, sometimes in the press they call him um, their CTO, but I basically worked with him as we um, he he started managing their consulting arm of the of Epic. Their people who are on airplanes every week flying out to health systems. Um, so I worked with him for about two and a half years um, in that job, kind of on special projects, different things that, um, b- both from a strategic level as well as like the tactical level and um, just getting the job done. Uh, and in that process, got to work on a lot of really kind of the innovative projects that were happening within the company. Uh, that's where I met Luke and James, my co-founders for Redox. Um, what was one of those projects or what's one that especially stands out? So the first project was was one that actually eventually led me to leave Epic and um, it was a data uh, information sharing software. So one of the challenges was um, there, Epic has hundreds of customers across the country. And for the most part, they're all trying to configure the software to do the similar things like, um, you know, the check-in workflow or the uh, putting a patient in a, in a, uh, in a, a room workflow. Like what are all these workflows? And, Epic's really customizable, so you can get creative on how you do it. And each health system was kind of recreating these new ways to do it. And so I wanted to figure out a way for us to share that information across all the different projects that were going on. So I did some Googling and, and found um, myself on Stack Overflow, as you typically do when you when you Google technical problems, and realized that Stack Overflow is a beautiful solution to solve this problem of uh, how what are the, the 10 different ways you can do one thing and... Um, People can, can if you haven't used Stack Overflow, most developers will probably find themselves on that website a couple times a day whenever they Google, like, how do I use JavaScript to transform a yada yada? Um, like, <laughs> a bunch of other developers have answered that question before, and they'll contribute and say, well, you can do it this way. And someone else will say, well, that way is okay, but I've tried it this way. And essentially, the community votes up and down answers. Um, so I thought this is a brilliant solution. It's kind of like a, a modern forum. It's like Quora, right? Yeah. Where you can ask whatever you want and you'll get great answers from the community. So I uh, rolled that out at Epic. We found an open source version uh, of that software. And I rolled it out you know, without asking anyone's permission or without any resources. Um, I was teaching healthcare economics at the time. And instead of, uh, instead of bringing the new hires in and teaching them healthcare economics, I said, everyone log into this platform and ask whatever question you want. And someone asked a you know typical new hire question at Epic, which was, why doesn't Epic have a gym? <laughs> like a typical que- yeah, yeah, yeah. question that new hires at- ask. Someone else asked the question, well, answered the question and said, Epic doesn't have a gym because they try to support the local gyms in our community. Yeah. And so if they had a gym, it might take business away from those guys, which is an answer that you know I've heard before and yeah. is a viable answer. Um, and so so that started this, this trend of people at Epic using the software. And within six months, we had most of the company like as users asking and answering people's questions on there. Wow. And so it was a, it clearly was working with the demographic of people that work within that organization. Um, and I eventually left Epic because um, I wanted to, to bring that software to directly to Epic's customers, which is not something that I thought I could do internally. Um, oh, and, and you originally asked this as to how I found these co-founders. Through that project, I actually met both Luke and James um, I met James because James was rewriting the uh, a search engine for Epic that that indexed all of the files that Epic had on its internal servers and all of the resources. And he wrote a he literally replaced Google at Epic with an open source search, search really? engine that um, he stood up there. And uh, I was meeting with him because I was like, "Hey, you have to index this uh, question and answer platform because we have a lot of knowledge here. Yeah. So let's get this on on your search en- search engine." Um, so I met him through that. And then uh, met Luke because Luke was running a, a kind of innovation group and the implementation team. And um, uh, we, we met as he was talking about like what are the different ways that different people within the, the implementation team could and should be using um, this question and answer platform. So kind of got to know both of them through projects that really, you know, 90% of their, their day jobs working with customers yeah. or like their core work. And then these were their side projects. Like how do we actually innovate and make the company better? Um, and so I really like that about them that they were spending their kind of extra time, which you don't have a lot of, um, working on, you know, out, outside projects that weren't part of the scope yeah, of their yeah. typical job. Um, which I think is, is common among entrepreneurs. You always find them tinkering in things that 
uh, you know, curious about, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did you guys all leave at the same time? No. So what happened was I left uh, in March of 2013. Yeah. March of 2013, I left Epic to uh, start a company called Breadcrumbs, which yeah. is that question and answer platform on the outside. So uh, left and we, we re rebuilt the platform and uh, started talking to health systems. And it was interesting because now I wasn't working at Epic, but I was in Madison. And it was my first time where I was downtown on a weekday. And I saw all the people and like people walking around the square and uh, the vibrancy of the town and was like, this is amazing. It's a, it's a great city to live and work in. Um, because before that, every, every day I was going out to, yeah, yeah. Out to Epic's campus in Verona. Um, so I started seeing all these great things that were going on in Madison and trying to find other people to work on things with. Because uh, I was doing my my company and we had three people and, and our startup but it can get really cozy just working with a couple people all day like you you need a community to help support new ventures and I found uh, we had a, a startup like a meetup going on capital entrepreneurs that had been going on for years before I had become an entrepreneur but that was something where once a month everyone drank beers together and everyone shared their stories and networked around their problems and <laughs> their their companies and I thought that was awesome and I said like, why, why isn't this, why isn't there a place where we can do this every day? Um, <laughs> like have a place where you can go and work on your startup, have a table and sit down and do whatever you're going to do, but be a part of a community. Um, so simultaneously while we were doing breadcrumbs, we tried to figure out like, how can we create a, a space where you have that? And at Epic, I think the, one of the things I loved about Epic was the people you got to work with on the diversity of different projects. I think a lot of people in college have a similar experience where, you know, college is half about the people you meet and the relationships you build, maybe more than half. Yeah. Right. Um, and you know, that's so much part of the learning process too, is collaborating. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Madison's a college town. The, the second biggest thing people do in Madison is Epic. And, um, <laughs> we thought, well, well, what if we built a place where, you know, people who are graduating from the university, uh, people who are leaving Epic and looking for that next thing to do could go and just, hang out and work on whatever they're working on, but find other people to do it with. Um, and that was the original idea behind 100 State was, you know, I had my startup. I knew a couple other people who had startups. Um, and we said, why don't we share an office and open it up to the general community and say, come and share this office with us. I don't care if you're a lawyer or if you're a graphic designer or a photographer or, or starting a company um, or a student and just want a different place to study, like come and hang out with us here and we'll go to lunch together. We'll, we'll throw events, we'll drink beer, um, but we'll be friends. Yeah. yeah. And that was, uh, yeah, that was in, uh, the sort of summer of, um, 2013 okay. was we, 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 we first were in a train car. So <laughs> we have this weird train car parked, uh, on West Washington there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah it's like, it's like, that's where you started. I remember when yeah. we blue tree. That's, that's a space that, uh, yeah. So before that before, we were in the train car. I know that. Okay. Yeah, so we, Breadcrumbs as a company, um, you know, we were looking for a place to to have our office. We didn't have any money. We didn't. We never raised money. Um, and uh, there was another company called Who's In, which was Michael Fenchel and, and some other folks. And uh, they were like, "Hey, let's get this train car. It's only seven hundred dollars a month." And it was the caboose of the of the train, the last car. And it was a terrible little office space. Um, <laughs> you know, a couple hundred square feet but 700 bucks a month and we could get internet in it. And uh, so we were like, okay, we're in. So we paid a couple hundred bucks. They paid a couple hundred. And then we started uh, trying to get other people. So we got a photographer to come join us. Um, we got a marketing guy who was like a marketing consultant and they just rented space for 50 bucks a month. And we covered the rent and had probably 10 people in there. And that's when George from Blue Tree came to the office and he said, hey, uh, I'm with a, you know, a slightly larger startup. Um, <laughs> we're thinking about getting a new office space, but it's way too big for us. Would you want to move your whole caboose co-working yeah. experience into, into our office with us? So we went and looked at it and that was the hundred state yeah. office. Um, so half of it was blue tree, which is a Epic focused consulting company. The other half was this hodgepodge of startups. Is that, is that when hundred state became more official? Yeah. That's when hundred state became hundred state. Yeah. I suppose. Really okay. Yeah. So before that we were just like people on a train car and we threw, we threw like ragers on this train car and it was <laughs> so fun. Um, and we're like, okay, now we can go bigger and take this to uh, an office space that at the time seemed just 
ginormous. I think it was, I don't remember the square footage, but it was, it was way bigger, you know, 15 offices, yeah. like yeah. A, a main uh, co-working area. Um, so we, we moved in there. One of the first things we did at a hundred state, um, was we, we threw TEDx Madison. So the, the folks who were involved in organizing a hundred states said like, what sort of event we can we draw the innovation community in with? And, um, so we put on TEDx Madison and we got a 10 speakers from around town talking about innovation in, in Madison. And, um, it was at that event where I met James again, who I met from Epic, but I was like, oh, you're not working at Epic anymore. What are you doing? And he's huh. like, I don't know. I, I just, really? just quit like so last you, week. So yeah. this was not coordinated. No. Nope. Like, wow. That's, yeah. You got, that's, that's serendipity. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, that's the point yeah. of these, uh, of these, you know, innovation yeah. communities yeah. Is, yeah. is to create moments of serendipity. Um, so James was at TEDx. He came to the after party that we had at 100 State, and he was like, "What is this space? I got to get involved." Um, so James became a, an active member and eventually on the board of 100 State as, as the co-working space grew from you know the kind of ten of us plus the consulting company that was in there to um, probably grew to maybe 100 people in that time period, in that year we were in that space. Um, to fast forward on the 100 State story, uh, eventually we moved across the street to a space that was like twice as big. Yeah. Um, and that was just a hundred states. So blue tree had moved on to their own office by then. Um, and that, that coworker community grew to about 200 people. And we started doing designated offices and designated desks, kind of building the pipeline of like, you start as a individual kind of in the main area, going to events and hanging out and networking. Once you get an idea and a team, you move to a table and you can call it yours. Uh, you can start collaborating with, with your team. Maybe you're talking to investors and things like that. So you need to pop out into an office every now and then. Um, and then once you become even more established, maybe you have a couple people on your team. Now you can move into an office and close the door, start focusing, but still have a community there to support you. And then eventually if, if your company starts taking off and you need, you need your own space in your own conference room, then, you know, you kind of graduate and move into the sort of commercial real estate yeah. <laughs> community, right, right, right. get yeah. your own place. Um, and that was the sort of early stage uh, pipeline that, that, you know, Hunter State was there to support. Um, and I, I went through that process because Redox did that exactly. So as I was sitting at Hunter State with James and we were seeing all these great people come through, um, a lot of them were former Epic employees. A lot of them knew a whole lot about healthcare and technology because of their experience at Epic. They were becoming members of Hunter State and getting involved in projects that uh, a lot of times had nothing to do with healthcare. And we saw that as a, as a, um, it was unfortunate yeah. because yeah. these people who have such experience uh, and talent in the space were, were essentially leaving the industry. Um, and not because they didn't like the industry, but because the opportunities that were, were in front of them yeah. were, you know, working on some app, some housing app or yeah. some like calendar app or something like that. Um, so, Originally, James and I put our heads together and said, well, you know, we're at 100 State. How do we help people here learn more and care more about healthcare?" And that's where 100 Health came from. So we took a little corner of 100 State and said, this is now 100 Health. This is where we talk about healthcare." <laughs> <laughs> nothing else. And nothing else. Yeah. So what we did is we started, we had a, we had these healthcare breakfasts. So um, we would cook, we'd cook eggs and invite, you know, 15 people to come in and we would talk about problems in healthcare and uh, brainstorm on them. So we had these like brainstorms over breakfast about healthcare. Um, Cause it was the idea to essentially like help incubate ideas and, and then essentially take equity for that and then roll them out into. Yeah, that's what we, at the beginning we didn't have an idea of okay. what, what the business model would be, yeah. but eventually we needed to figure that out. Yeah. So um, that's when Luke got involved. James and I were looking at each other and James and I are really good at brainstorming, but uh, we're like, we need someone who can crack the whip and make sure we get shit done. And, um, and that, and at the time I was like, Oh, that guy, Luke, that I knew from Epic would be amazing at this. So I called Luke up and, uh, it just so happened that he was, he was trying to think of what the next thing he wanted to do. Huh. And he had been thinking a lot about innovation in healthcare and in technology and just loved this, fell in love with it right away. Um, was very quick, uh, very quick to quit Epic and jump ship and, and, and join us. And, um, you know, I think he was in a transitionary period anyways, but he, he came in and was like, okay, this is awesome. But so far, everything we're doing is kind of non profit -y. Like, how do we turn this into something that can scale or we can actually provide, um, 
provide value to more people than just a couple of people that are in front of us. Meanwhile, J- James and I are both doing odd jobs on the side just to like yeah. make ends meet. Um, so we started thinking about, you know, what's a compelling business model here that we can gain some traction on and raise some money. Um, so we said, okay, we have all these people who are interested in healthcare. We have ideas being generated from it. We created a, a panel of mentors, like 50 mentors from health systems across the country. Um, just people that we, we knew from our, our days working in healthcare and, um, essentially said, okay, this is some, some really cool raw ingredients to help incubate companies. So, but we didn't have a fund, so we yeah. couldn't do like a traditional tech stars model where we invest, yeah, a uh, invest a little bit and then follow on. Um, we didn't know anything about VC funds. So, so like, I guess we could have thought about raising a fund, but no one even like brought, brought that idea up because we had no idea. <laughs> um, so we said, okay, well, what if we like incubate and work with these companies and the longer we work with them, the more equity we can gain. Yeah, yeah. And so we came up with this really weird accelerator model that, um, you know, eventually we started seven companies during it, really? like wow. with this model, uh, with, you know, a bunch of different groups. Um, and we learned a couple things in this process. All right. All right. Any of those, uh, still going on? Yeah. A couple of them actually, well, so actually two of them exactly. Um, <laughs> one of them is a book company okay. that I started. So this was a collaboration with a bunch of members at hundred state, oh, yeah, but, uh, this was around ICD 10. So ICD 10 was coming out and, um, ICD 10 is a medical billing coding, uh, language, basically health systems will send these codes to insurers. So that way they know that they're talking about the same ways people have injured themselves. And with version 10 of the system, ICD 10, uh, there are more and more codes out there that were seemingly ridiculous to the um, to anyone. So there were codes like uh, "burn due to water skis on fire" or "struck by orca" yeah. um, or uh, all sorts of different things like "sucked into jet jet engine subsequent encounter." So it's happened more than once. Um, so there's just weird ways wow. to that you could possibly <laughs> injure yourself. And so anytime any any health tech nerd talked about ICD-10. They always pulled out the weird ones, uh, like struck by duck, uh, or other other contact with shark, like some really obscure specific things. So what we decided to do was build a, um, uh, uh, like an illustrated book on this. So so we we reached out to all the artists we knew in the community, you know, put it up on Facebook and said we're we're looking for artists who want to illustrate weird medical billing codes and actually got a lot of people saying like, I'll take one of those. Those are some weird codes. Like I'll take the other contact with shark and draw like a, you know, an artist rendition of what that meant. So we put that in a book and, um, started selling the book off our website and it, it started selling really well. And so literally for the next two years, I think most of my income came from that book. <laughs> yeah. But it was a huge collaboration with all of the artists and people in the, the community. We shared profits with the, the artists um, and literally to this day, my dad's full-time job is to ship books no um, from home. So he's still wow. every day shipping books. You can still buy them. They're on Amazon. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's fun. Um, and in the, in the industry, That's a lot awesome. of, yeah. I'll go to meetings at health systems, like to this day yeah. and see the book on the, on the conference room no table. It's good. The conversation started. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, you guys have this book. And they're always like, Oh yeah, we love it. It's, it's funny. Have you seen it? And I'm like, did you notice the name on it? That's uh, that's me. Um, so that's that's one company that survived the uh, the hundred health days. Most of the other companies in there, we realized, would need. Most of them were technology companies. Okay. They would need to exchange data with electronic medical records to scale. Hence Redux. And uh, <laughs> and so so that was a core understanding that we yeah. got with hundred health. And so the seventh company was Redox, and that was how do we actually help this ecosystem of healthcare technology, like new emerging technology, yeah. integrate in a scalable way with uh, the legacy s- systems, EMRs, that are used okay. at health systems. So, yeah, and maybe that was it, but just what's the overview of Redox is that, is it, yeah, just to make sure everyone understands. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so that, that's kind of how the idea was born, is that we realized uh, there's a common problem when you're bringing new technology to market in healthcare, and that's, any health system you sell to is going to ask you, oh, this is great. You know, I love the value propositions you're offering, but how do you actually work with the behemoth electronic medical record that's in my basement that I spent $50 million last year on? Um, and if you don't have a good answer to that, it's hard to move forward in the sales process. Uh, so, so obviously, with our background coming from the EMR space, 
James specifically was a developer who worked on a lot of that. Um, he said, well, we can, we can build a platform. It's an, uh, we can build an API platform that modern developers would know how to use. So it's a, it's a typical API that, you know, any developer who's, who's integrated with Facebook or Google or um, LinkedIn has used APIs like this. It's REST-based uh, JSON. Um, modern web developers know how to use this stuff. If we can create a standardized API experience, Redox can do the hard work on the other end of connecting up to the disparate customized yeah. legacy systems that are out there. And this isn't a new business model, right? Like there's been companies in other industries that have done this really successfully. Um, so Twilio is a good example yes. where, where, you know, if you want to send an SMS, it's, you're going to use Twilio to do it because they have a single, very simple API to use. And Twilio goes and figures out how to integrate with Verizon and Sprint and T-Mobile and all the other sort of weird middlemen you have to do to actually send an SMS over a, over a phone. Um, there's also other, uh, in the financial industry, Mint.com was, was an early sort of person trying to aggregate all of your financial data from different bank accounts. And before an API, Mint.com actually did screen scraping where they would make you log into your Bank of America account through their portal, and then they would go in and screen scrape it in the browser. Uh, and eventually they moved to, to using APIs to do this. So there was a company called Yodely who came out in the financial industry, and they worked with all the big banks to um, get all of that data into a consistent API that developers can build on top of. Um, and so we're, we're definitely in that, in that vein of following the footsteps of these great integration companies, but no one was really doing it in healthcare yet. Um, so we have a very much a developer first approach. We're trying to support the people who are, you know, at the, at the edge of innovation, pushing the needle, who are, uh, <laughs> moving the, moving the needle, pushing the envelope. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're pushing the envelope and in innovation. Uh, the ones developing these, these solutions, um, we give them a consistent API experience so they know what data to, to get. And when a health system asks them how they can integrate, they have a solid answer to that question that helps them get through that process. Um, and so the, okay. the Hunter Health experience helped us realize that that was a big problem. It also helped, helped us realize that our team was uniquely positioned to solve that problem, which our team was not uniquely positioned to start an incubator because <laughs> We had never started a company really before, other than you know these things I've mentioned. Um, but we're, we're by no means experts in it. Uh, but we are experts in healthcare technology and um, you know modern web development and how how those two things need to be merged together for for new innovations to happen. And uh, can you just give us kind of the stats on Redox, like how much money you raised, number of employees, any other fun facts? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so we. Um, at that time, we when we figured out we wanted to um, to do Redox, it was just like the three of us, and we had an idea. At that time, we were able to surprisingly raise an angel round of like 350k. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and so with that, we hired our first two two developers, some more friends that that we had made at Epic, and um, started the journey there. And since then, we've grown to I think we're at 30 employees now, um, and that was I guess it's two and a half years that okay. we've been doing this. Um, so we're at 30 employees. We've raised a couple rounds of investment after that. Uh, so we're at, I think, 13 million total uh, money in. And what's what's great about this developer-first approach is that we focus on building this developer community. And so now we have this community of, uh, I think it's 2,600 developers that have created accounts on Redox. Wow. So these are people who are creating like new innovative apps and they want to find you know the API to work with and the platform to build that on top of. Um, so that's the developer community, and once those developers uh, get an application that's whoa, Slack. <laughs> once those developers get a, an application that's market ready, um, they'll uh, they bring us into the conversations with health systems, and so we've integrated with more than two dozen electronic medical record systems spanning across seventy different health systems around the country, um, and we have one in the Netherlands now too. So um, internationally. And the thing that makes us kind of unique in this is that, you know, people have done healthcare integration in the past, but no one's ever done it in a cloud-based multi-tenant mm -hmm. system. So we, all of the data, we're processing around a million clinical messages a day. All of that goes through the exact same engine. And the cool thing here is that two health systems that are plugged into Redox, they might be integrating with two different applications, but because it's all going through that exact same hub, they're technically interoperable, which means we can flip a switch and, and share data between two health systems if, if and when they might need to do that. 
So as we're, as we're growing, we're essentially building a network where every node that we're adding to it makes the whole thing so much more valuable to everyone that's a part of it. And, and so what, what's the process if you have like five networks, hospital networks, say, hey, we want to share data or share around this certain area. How, or if, uh, yeah, how, how does that work? Do you need permission from all the health networks or yeah, what's the process to? Yeah, yeah, so we're, whenever we share data between two parties, uh, both parties need to agree and say yes. Typically for every new engagement, like for each new app or? Yeah, every, every new node we add to the network, if they want data, they have to get permission from the health system. Okay, all right. Typically that permission comes in the form of a business associate agreement. So what that is, is the health system is, is saying, we are associated with this technology provider okay. and we need to use them to provide care for patients. And therefore they get access to this data. And um, that's, how we, that's how we currently today are, are getting data from A to B. Okay. Um, and so, so if, if A and B are exchanging data and C comes along, they need to get permission from the source, from A, to, to, get, to be added into that chain. Um, technically, we can just flip a switch, but legally, they need that permission. Where I think we want to get to, like where I think the industry needs to get to, is a point where a patient themselves... Mm, yeah. so, so in this, you know, in, in this sort of A's and B's I've been talking about, the patient hasn't been discussed at all. It's really just health system who's providing care application who's providing software agree that, that they should work together. But what's missing from this equation is the patient has, has never, there's not a mechanism right now as a patient for you to say, I have an application and I want all of my clinical data to go into it. And I think that's where we, where we need to get to because right now, if you look at consumer health and I, I use air quotes because cons- consumer health applications are really kind of fitness apps right now. Like they're, they're things like Strava or like even Apple's Health Kit, um, and apps that integrate with that. You know your Fitbit and those sorts of yeah. things. Those are applications that are used in a fitness capacity, but they're not really applications that are used in a clinical care setting. And there's this there's this divide. You can look at that as the end of two spectrums. Um, if the spectrum of healthcare technology on one end is is your fitness, like you're feeling good, you're you're eating well, you're remembering to drink, like those types of apps. On the other end is you had a knee replacement and you need to track your recovery and your meds and uh, make sure that you don't need another knee replacement in five years. Um, so like the very acute clinical care are all the way to the preventative sort of fitness yeah. style yeah. care. And I think right now, like hardcore healthcare technology in the clinical setting happens without the patient's input. And then when the patient's engaged, it's more on the fitness side. And for clinical, I mean, for healthcare technology to become mainstream and actually reach consumer health, we need to bridge that gap. And we're not going to get there until a patient, you know, a sovereign patient can actually tell a health system, I need my data to come down in an API format, and I need to be able to authorize any app that I want to use that data. That would be awesome. And that's what, so how do you make that happen? Because I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a chicken or the egg problem. Is it it as much political as anything or... I mean, technology-wise, it it seemed, it would seem like it would be quite possible. Well, so technology-wise, we have a we have a, a connectivity problem. Okay. Uh, so most people out there have been to multiple doctors over their lifetime, uh, and even you know a lot of people who have chronic diseases will go to multiple doctors within a you know a given year, just because they'll have specialists and you know maybe are hospitalized. Um, and a lot of the times, those systems don't talk to each other because they're not connected. So, so first we need that network to connect the systems. That's what Redox is doing today. Okay. Then we need a network that allows the patient authorization, um, and that's where I think Redox is going. Is uh, okay. a place where you know we have the developer community. We're building a network yeah. that's connected, and then how can we help the developers build tools that patients or consumers yeah. will actually want to download? Because consumers don't have a demand for APIs. Most people don't know what an API is. They have a demand for applications that can help them turn data into information. And, uh, but those applications need to be powered by APIs to pull the data down. Okay. And, uh, I, I know we're almost, uh, do you, do you still have a, a little time or? Yeah. yeah okay. Totally. All right. Um, cause then I'll, I'll just keep, we'll just keep, uh, firing through these questions here. Um, so, and what's the process for somebody to connect to the EHRs without Redox? Like, so, so that, yeah, I want to connect to the University of Wisconsin Hospital. And I'm like, I don't want to go with you guys. And <laughs> which is not probably not. Yeah, well, I'm curious how that would even work. So you, you can totally nightmare. you can totally do that. Um, you can totally you can totally connect to any health system um, without without Redox. Um, but you, what you're doing is is 
basically connecting point to point. You're connecting A to B, um, and that means you'll need to connect A to C and A to D and A to E and A to F as you're as you grow. Um, and each one of those projects is a pain and takes time and takes effort. And you're not what you're not doing is solving an industry-wide problem. So when we talk to customers who are trying to figure out, do I work with Redox or do I connect directly? What we say is, if you connect to Redox and we're already plugged into a health system, like that's gonna make, it's not, it's not a project anymore, it's just turning you on. So you're connecting to a network that will enable you to move a lot faster. Um, and eventually what we hope is that integration's a commodity where it's not something that you differentiate and say like, oh, my app's great because I can integrate with the legacy system. That should be a given that all apps integrate with legacy systems because they need to, um, because the legacy system is the backbone, the source of truth. Um, and hopefully if integration is a commodity, then everyone's like using a network yeah. to do that. And I don't think that Redox needs to be the one and only network. Like we'll connect to other people's networks, but it needs to be a networked approach. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Okay. Um, and do you have any uh, interesting uh, case studies or like that uh, a company doing something interesting because of Redox. Yeah, yeah. So one of my favorites that I think is a really cool ex technology example is um, this company called Gauss Surgical. They were actually the first one that we went live with, so it has a special place in our hearts. Um, but they, they're a startup out of Palo Alto. They have a, an iPad app that is used in the operating room. And a, a nurse will use this app to document any blood loss a patient's had. So if you imagine any operation, it gets a little messy. Blood gets on the floor, in canisters, on the gown, in sponges. And um, they need to document how much blood the patient lost to figure out if the patient needs a blood transfusion um, or uh, other complications that happen with blood loss. So right now, current state without their app, people are kind of guessing. They're saying, oh, we, we lost a couple ounces on the floor there. I don't, I don't know how much that is. And the canister, you know, has 100 cc's in it. Um, and so they try to document that into the medical record. What the app does is it uses spatial analysis and machine learning and uh, blood lab values to, they take pictures of blood and it measures, yeah, it uses the pictures to measure like, okay, the blood is that red and it's covering this area. Um, so they can determine how much blood patients lost. And it's FDA cleared to do that. Really? Way more accurately than, you know, weighing sponges. Wow. Um, so like mind-blowing technology. Yeah. And that's what those guys are amazing at is that experience of uh, figuring out how much blood a patient's lost. Uh, and what we help them with is we just take the number, you know, the pa they say the patient lost 200 milliliters of blood, and we just put that in the right spot in the medical record. Because once it's in the medical record, it aligns with the source of truth and they can figure out, okay, patient has all these other diagnoses or has um, you know other complications and we need to get a blood transfusion or we don't need to. Okay. Um, so we, we went live with them uh, a couple of years ago at uh, Hackensack University Medical Center. All of the, the C-sections that happen um, in their birthing suites uh, use this technology because blood loss in a C-section can get really complicated for the, for the baby and the mother. Um, and uh, uh, it's kind of cool that you know the first thing, the first technology that we did is used in life or death situations um, at a you know major academic health system, um, and it's just like such cool Star Trek type technology. <laughs> That's nuts. Um, also have the Hololens on, and then they can just look around and boom, it'll yeah. just like automatically record. <laughs> um, all right, and let's see. We'll try to run through these. Uh, so, I mean, you. I mean, you're doing a lot of interesting stuff. Like, where do you, you want to kind of take Redux, Redux technology? And we probably already talked about. Can you talk about kind of having the patient? Um, yeah. verification. I mean, is that, is that the main? Well, yeah, so that, that's kind of the aspirational area. Like we, we want to get to a point where we power consumer applications in the same way that we power yeah. enterprise applications. But really there's a lot of work that we're doing right now in the next year on the enterprise side. So things around analytics and um, giving health systems tools that they need to better utilize the data. Um, so there's a, a lot of stuff in the short term that we're putting effort into. And so when we, you know, look at how we're how we're spending this investment that we recently raised, it's really about um, improving our product to to meet the needs of the ever changing um, healthcare enterprise. And that's everything from adopting new innovative technologies to developing their own technologies on top of their their electronic medical record. Interesting. Okay. So are you actually providing building analytical tools? Yeah, right now we have we have kind of some analytics that come out of the box as far as kind of metadata around the messages that are being processed. Huh. But what we don't have are, are like clinical analytics, and I think that's an area where we're you know we're interested in, in moving into. Um, 
or giving people the ability to yeah. ask questions of the data yeah. rather than us just telling you every time a patient's discharged, we need to be, we need to allow you to ask, tell me all the patients who have been discharged and who have congestive heart failure okay. or something like that. And so that's the, the sort of slight change in the API functionality that actually requires a lot of engineering, um, but it's something that we think needs to happen in this, in this healthcare API space. Okay. And, and it, if I, if I had an app and I wanted to connect to like 25 different health networks, um, what's like the price? Uh, you don't have to tell exact pricing, but more like, is it per site or is it like a volume? Like yeah, yeah. It's, it's not volume based because a lot of times the health systems, well, as an app developer, you're not dictating the volume that comes out of a health system. Mm-hmm. Whereas like with Twilio, you can do volume based because they determine how many SMSs they're going to send. Um, so that's a that's a slight difference. We we do it on a per connection basis. So if you're connecting to 25 health systems, each one of those health systems is like a license that you purchase from us. Uh, and then depending on how much like the scope of the data uh, that you're connecting with uh, is uh, determines the exact license price. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, and I think we have about uh, three or four more. Uh, I, I mean, I was curious. This is so. This is moving a little beyond Redox because uh, more kind of. A little outside of Redox, but kind of associated with it because you were an entrepreneur in residence at Cisco. Oh yeah, yeah. How I was definitely curious. How was that experience? It was awesome. So we we actually did that through Redox. So yeah, yeah. well yeah, I know it's through Redox. It's not necessarily what you guys are doing. But yeah, yeah. So we were working with a, a big health system out in the Bay Area, and um, they the health system said, "Oh, this is really interesting. You guys are doing solving a really cool problem." We've actually been working with Cisco on this problem. And for us, we, immediately we were like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> like they're, they're working with Cisco, like one of the biggest, you know, software and hardware companies in the world. Like if they're going to solve this problem, like if, if you know, they're someone who can actually take a take a crack out of this problem. So we were initially intimidated, but they introduced us to their contacts at Cisco, and um, Cisco was really an amazing company to work with. Um, it, you know, they're a huge company, but but they they have the means to work with startups and. They said, okay, if, you, if, if we're going to work with you, there's a number of ways we can do it. But if you do entrepreneur in residence program, uh, what it does is it essentially brings you into the family mm-hmm. and says like, okay, now you're part of Cisco and we can figure out and be much more transparent wow. with figuring out how, how we can partner and work yeah. together. So we did that program. It was a six-month thing. So it wrapped up, uh, I think, last month. Um, but we're still working with Cisco and still figuring out the exact ways that we're working on that deal. And we can't publicly talk about it yet, but I think, you know, eventually we'll be able to make an announcement yeah. and say, you know. Did you spend a lot of time out there or were you here? What, what did it mean you're on site? Or? Yeah. So we, we, you know, just out of the nature of our business, we spent a lot of time in the Bay Area anyways. Yeah. Uh, and when we were there, we were always meeting with Cisco okay. and, and the health system we were working with there. And uh, so it was a, you know, we we're probably out there at least once a month okay. during that time period. And, and you're in Madison, which is awesome. Do you, first off, do you plan on staying here, like keep, keeping the headquarters here at least? And, uh, and what type of uh, resistance have you gotten from like investors or like even the health network? Health networks probably used to develop, right? By after. Yeah. So like, yeah. Oh, great. But yeah, has there been any resistance or is it? No, you know, we, we love being in Madison. It's home. Uh, we're going we're gonna to stay here. We let our employees live wherever they want. Okay. So we have probably 10 employees who are, are kind of scattered around the country. But we bring everyone to Madison every every quarter at least to uh, hang out to make sure we still see each other in person and um, you know go out to dinner and, and hang out with the team for a week. Um, but we let our employees live wherever they want, and even the employees who who want well who could leave Madison they, they choose to stay here because they uh, um, well a lot of them choose to stay because they like the town and it's yeah. a it's low cost of living so your money goes further great community um, with lots of support. Um, you know, flying out of here isn't the easiest thing to do, but we drive to Milwaukee a lot. So um, <laughs> we've we gotten used to that a little bit. But uh, no, uh, Madison's going to be home for, for Redox. I love it. For the foreseeable awesome. future. All right. Well, I expect big things. And uh, a <laughs> couple of last questions more around a, a personal. So uh, I was, well, first off, I remember reading, I don't know if you still do this, but you used to meditate before meetings. Yeah. You guys still do that. Uh, no, yeah. it got a little disruptive. Um, <laughs> Because that's a team disruptive. Yeah, it did. Because because yeah. we'd finally get everyone together and yeah. settle to have like a big company wide yeah. meeting, and then we'd be like, okay, three minutes of silence, <laughs> and uh, people were like, ah, dang it, you know, like I'm I'm I was, you I'm know. ready to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's unfortunate because it's it's something that I think is is important to you know take time to uh, to gather yourself. Um, so I know a lot of us do it still independently. Yeah. Um, we we stopped doing it as a team. It's something that 
we we've had you know people on the team say like we wish we would do more of that. Um, I think it's something that hopefully we can get to a point where we can find more outlets for it. Yeah. Um, when we whenever we have team weeks and bring everyone to town, we try to do something kind of more on the mindfulness side together. So we've had yoga teachers come in and lead us through guided meditations and stuff. Um, but we stopped doing it. Um, all right. And the last question is, uh, so how, and it kind of goes along the lines of meditation, you know, how do you deal kind of with stress? How do you get away? Cause you know, it's not, it's awesome what you're dealing, but it's not all roses and daisies and lollipops. Um, so how do you, when you're stressed, like how do you, uh, how do you uh, relax and get away? So, uh, I just had a baby. And so oh, when nice. I, yeah, when I get home from, <laughs> when I get awesome. home from work, like, you know, I know that until the baby goes to bed, I am not looking at any yeah, work. Yeah. Um, even if people call me, then I don't answer it because like, that's the little time I get to spend with him. Um, and, and it's total stress relief and he can be crying his head off and it's, it's still, it's still super energizing oh, for me to just yeah. be hanging out with him. And, um, you know, so I did bedtime routine and everything. Uh, and then put him down and, and after dinner, I typically have a couple hours of just like quiet work time where I can typically catch up on everything that uh, I needed to do for the day. Um, so I've gotten in a pretty good ry- rhythm of doing that. Uh, travel definitely throws a, a wrench in all of that, but you know, just having that time to unplug and, um, you know, spend time with, with families has been really important. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's a good, that's a good answer. And I love how a, a little baby is not stressful. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a my, if, if anybody knows Nico, he's pretty, it's a pretty laid back guy. So my, well, my wife does a lot of the stressful things yes, with the baby. So she, she has the hard job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and he's, he's an amazing baby. He sleeps through the night and stuff. Really? So wow. We, we have a, we had it lucky with him. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, we went over time, but. I love this is awesome. So Nico, thanks for uh, yeah, my pleasure telling us your story and telling us about Redox and uh, when uh when you have uh, some big announcements in the future, maybe I'll come back and uh, yeah, that'd be, we'll, that'd be we'll cool. do another one down the road. But <laughs> and thanks everyone for listening to another episode of, uh, episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I definitely appreciate it. Bye everyone.